Hello, and welcome to the latest installment of the VG Oncology podcast. Today's episode is focused on some of the recent exciting advances in gastrointestinal cancer, and today's panel of GI experts will be considering what the latest research data could mean for clinical practice in the future. Natalia Yuboa from the University of Wisconsin is joined by Kristen Siomba from Vanderbilt University and Gassan Abu Alpha from Memorial Sloan Kettering, and together the panel will be discussing some of their highlights from the 2022 ASCO Gastrointestinal Cancer Symposium. They'll be covering the Topaz-1 trial, which evaluated Devalumab plus Gemsys in biliary tract cancer, the Himalaya study and how it compares to Iron Brave 150 in hepatocellular carcinoma, and Crystal-1, which assessed Adagrasib in KRAS G12C mutated pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma. Importantly, the panel will also be considering results from the Circulate Japan study and the implementation of circulating tumor DNA testing in clinical practice for gastrointestinal cancers, as well as the potentially practice-changing Axon IDEA study in stage 3 colorectal cancer and PD-1 blockade in MSI high rectal cancer. There's lots for them to cover, so I'll hand you over to the experts. Hi, everybody, and thank you for joining the session uh, on ASCO GI updates for uh, VJ Oncology. My name is Natalia Bova, and I'm an associate professor of medical oncology in the University of Wisconsin. Uh, and I am delighted to have the true experts in the fields with me today, Dr. Kristen Siomber, who is an associate professor from Vanderbilt University, and Dr. Ghassan Abu-Alpha, who is a professor at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Thank you so much for joining me, and I am excited to have a very fruitful discussion about the recent updates uh, about GI cancers from GI ASCOM. I, I was going to start with talking about pancreatobiliary cancers. And um, Kassan, if you could uh, take us uh, through some of the um, key studies. I, I uh, was going to start with the Topaz study, which is a first-line uh, phase three trial of Drevelumab in combination with chemotherapy for advanced thyroid tract cancers. Thank you. Well, thanks so much, Natalia, and thank you for having us. Uh, it's a great delight. And I have to start by saying, our uh, first thing is that uh, congratulations, congratulations to ASCO. Uh, this was a beyond successful meeting, and uh, you hit it right on uh, to have uh, the hepatopancreatobiliary first, because, whoa, like, you know, this was like... Uh, we didn't even mention it in the meeting, and this was really like the mover and shaker of this uh, GIS this year. Uh, so you hit it right on to pause uh, a quite impressive effort, uh, and this is led by our dear colleague Detro from uh, uh, South Korea. And uh, it it is really a very straightforward concept: is uh, how can we add on a checkpoint inhibitor? to chemotherapy. And uh, this is, of course, based on many of the theories that we had before in regard to probably a certain priming and a certain kind of, you know, continuation with the checkpoint afterwards. So you can consider it bold, but impressive, where the patients were randomized to either gemcidine cisplatin, which is a standard of care therapy, uh, up to eight cycles, same way our colleagues in England did write the ABC02 with Dr. Valley and colleagues. And these patients were either had on GEMSYS plus Dervalumab as an NTPDL1 versus GEMSYS and a placebo. So clearly it was randomization for standard of care therapy for up to eight cycles plus minus Dervalumab. And the data uh, of patients uh, that, uh, you know, were about like close to about 700 in the study uh, came out positive with an improvement in survival, a 12.8 month median survival for the Dervalumab plus GEMSYS versus 11.5 months for the GEMSYS plus placebo. Now here you can read things a little bit in different 
different ways. And people may say, oh, wait a minute, this is not much. What it is, because statistically it was significant and clinically significant, as you can see from the responses that we have on. More importantly, we have to start all of us train our mind and kind of, you know, thinking process, how we look at survivals when it comes to checkpoint inhibitors. And if anything, the curves really continue to spread out over time, enough that really we had by 24 months, a clear continued improvement. 24% of the patients, one quarter of the patients were still alive at 24 months or two years versus 10% for the uh, GEMSYS. And the cutoff was kind of like for spreading of the curves, started around nine months. Really, this is where the separation is because, yes, of course, it takes time to prime the immune response to get this benefit from therapy. So I think all in all, it was a great study. And by all means, I would say many of us already are practicing and adding Dervalumab to the patients in first line for uh, biliary cancers at the GEMSYS. So, Gassan, I wanted to ask your opinion about the design of the study. They stopped chemotherapy after six months. Is that what you do in your practice? And Kristen, please comment as well. What do you do after six months of GEMSYS, which is, I agree, the way ABCO2 was designed? I would say that... Uh, um as you and I know, in the U.S., we just continue therapy until uh, intolerance or until progression. Uh, but uh, no doubt that the add-on of the darvulumab is uh, giving us a different perspective now, i.e., is it that the priming with the GEMSYS and the Durvalumab and combination of the Durvalumab is maintained therapy in novel perspective? By all means, why not? I mean, the data is in front of us and uh, patients would love that because after all, the side effects from the GEMSYB and cisplatin are not necessarily like the ones that people could aspire for. And at the same time, we know very well if people try Durvalumab, especially within the eight weeks where really the continuation of the whole potential spectrum of side effects is all gone, I would say that, why not? I would say we're comfortable continuing only with Darvonimab after eight cycles of chemotherapy. That's great to hear you say that, Gassan. I was, I was sort of leaning that way as well. You know, when, when I give GEMSYS, I, I do tend to continue it as long as it's tolerated, but this gives us an opportunity to stop, I think, without stopping therapy completely. So I think that's very a very welcome result. Yeah, no, I was excited to see a positive study. I agree. We were way overdue for a positive study in this space. I am excited about GEMSYS abraxane phase three study that's run uh, um, uh, by Dr. Rashna Shroff, although I do appreciate that the triple chemotherapy is not going to be an option for all of our patients because of performance status. I think it'll be interesting to see some of the subgroup analysis going forward with molecular testing, MSI testing, which were not presented at this meeting, but hopefully we'll, we'll gleam who are the patients to benefit. Um, and then the last question that I had also about the subgroup analysis that um, you probably have noticed, they looked by Asian versus non-Asian patients and Asian versus non-Asian countries, and it really was no benefit um, in non-Asian countries. So I'm curious as to how we should interpret it um, in the U.S. in terms of incorporating this. Sure. No, by all means, uh, thanks so much, Natalia. If anything, everybody asks the same question and everybody keep continue to ask the same question. And if anything, we have to, however, put a subgroup analysis within its limited context. It's a subgroup analysis. And if anything, the benefit, I would say, was noted among all different um, uh, variables, among which the Asian and Asian is still, despite that the uh, hazard ratio for the non-Asian was 
closer to the cutoff of one, but still it was within the realm of the Dervilmab Gemsis. Um, now, could it be that there are other variables here to play a role? By all means, actually, when we come to talk, and I think you're going to ask me about the Himalaya as well, the patience in Asia appears to be for what we presume, either it is because of a uh, potential infection in, hepatite, in a hepatic cell carcinoma, uh, for example, or even the ethnicity itself can really make it a little bit more prone to benefit from the checkpoint inhibitors. This is all theory. I really cannot in any way claim that if I have a patient who is non-Asian, I would not give you the Valumab. We are giving it to everybody. At this point in time, the subgroup analysis within this context, yes, is showing some subtle variation, but nothing crossed the hazardous issue cutoff of one to decide, no, there's no benefit there. There's still benefit. It's a matter of just maybe delineating further of this and better understanding it. But at this moment, it's available for everybody. It should be available for everybody. Thank you so much. This was great. Great discussion. But you're right. We are going to move towards HCC now. Duralumab and Tremolimumab and HCC Himalaya trial. And uh, did a great discussion already of this at uh, ASCO uh, at the, in, the in-person meeting. But if you could walk us through the study and the results. That would be great. Thank you. No, thanks so much, uh, Natalia, again. And uh, full disclosure, as you all know, I, on behalf of all dear colleagues, I'm the one who presented the Himalaya, and it was a great, great honor. And uh, if anything, I, 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 at ASCO, I kind of like started by the results and everybody asked me why, because you know what? Everybody was waiting for this and, you know, because it's so robust, positive study, by all means, you know, let's just see it because more importantly, and I give you credit, Natalia, exactly. Let's learn what exactly is going on. The concept of it is beyond fascinating because the idea is that at the cell membrane level, we have the T cells trying to come attack the cancer. We already tried that with regard to the NTPD1, NTPD one as single agent, and we know very well they did not really imply that much of a valuable added response. However, when we start getting some priming from whatever it is, being VGF, uh, FGF, uh, and there are a lot of trials, some of them are greatly positive for that purpose, then definitely you'll get more benefit. Interestingly, now we're going all the way to the top of the chain of command because CTLA-4 lodged in the lymph node. And interestingly, CTLA-4 can really hijack away CD8, 6 which send the message all the way to the NTPD1 and PDL1. And NTCLA-4 come to take away that kind of, you know, blocking the CD8, 6 from causing their effect and gives it to be uh, more efficient. Interestingly, which we I personally didn't know that, but it was fascinating. Anti-CTLA-4 has three times more potency than even the normal molecule of CD28 that enhance CD8 6 As such, came out with the idea, and this is where the novelty is, one dose, one dose only of tremolimumab is enough to really induce that effect. So the study as such was randomizing patients for the dervalumab plus tremolimumab with tremolimumab given only one dose at 300 milligram versus dervalumab as single agent anti-PDL1. Understandably, remember the study started at a time when still these things are being looked into. And thirdly, of course, we had a reference, which is the sorafenib. This study primary endpoint was to compare the dervalumab plus tremolimumab to sorafenib, looking for superiority for overall survival. But also, it looked at dervalumab versus sorafenib, looking for non-inferiority based on prior data done with other trials that we were all were involved in. 
The study, if anything, came positive, and it showed that there is clearly an improvement in survival for the tremlimab plus darvalumab with a median of 16.4 months for the T300 plus D and of 13.8 months for sorafenib. Clinically, as this is significant. Uh, if anything, it also showed the non-inferiority that we were looking for darvalumab versus sorafenib, 16.6 and 13.8. And if anything, the hence ratio was 0.86 for that one. Totally non-inferiority um, uh, matching between darvalumab and sorafenib. So I think uh, it really kind of like, it's like uh, one stone hit two birds. If anything, number one, we have clearly uh, a new uh, a novel approach of one dose of tremlimab plus darvalumab as a improvement of survival compared to standard care sorafenib. And of course, number two is, and I'm not sure who are those patients who are going to get darvalumab only, but of course, darvalumab is as good as sorafenib, was of course a way better toxicity as we already presented as well, where the grade three and four toxicity was mainly with the sorafenib. Thank you, this was great. Um, and an obvious question is, um, how does this compare to embrace, we should never do a cross trial comparisons, but we always do them. And numerically, the overall survival in embrace was a bit longer. So, thoughts? Well, you're right. We should not do them, and uh, that's why we should not talk about. It. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, I can tell you, my way from uh, from the hotel to a GI ASCO, and before I present the uh, Himalaya study. I was asked about the Ambrave 150 comparison 12 times uh, on the street. <laughs> so, so I can understand we are doing this. To be fair, uh, number one, they are both great products. I mean, no question about it. These are both robust clinical trial, positive data, no question about it. Number two, the comparison is unfair because we are really comparing apples and oranges. Because if anything, the add-on of the bafacizumab is the anti-VGF level activity that happens very close to where the NTPD1 and NTPD1 activity happen in the cell membrane, while NTCL4 is something which is happening at a very different place, which is all the way in the lymph node. So to be fair, we're now, if anything, not comparing the study results, comparing outcomes. Now, when it comes to outcome, this is where we have to start dissecting and analyzing in different ways. Number one is the patient population was not necessarily equal. And to be fair, these studies were done in different setups. And if anything, there's a certain robustness of the patients in Asia. We just spoke about it for the Tupaz in regard to the um, Ibrave 150. We had a much broader perspective of patients from literally all over the world all over the world in regard to the Himalaya, which give us a little bit of a more, uh, a broader perspective of about how everybody did benefit regardless of where they're coming from or where the ideology is. Number two is with the Ambrave 150, uh, again, as we've been anticipating, the patients with the uh, hepatitis B might fare better. And frankly, we see it ourselves also. So it's not like anything. So now if you weigh things in, yes, of course, you might see a little bit of difference that might favor the Ambrave 150. But again, I would say it's maybe an unfair comparator over here. And number two is we come now to the other things. Usually, you know me, I refrain from those questions uh, because respectfully, I yes, do acknowledge and do appreciate that we have two great products in front of us. But by all means, the anti-drug antibody issue is a 
serious issue in regard to the Ambrave 150. 30% of the patients have actually anti-drug antibody, which means their hazard ratio goes all the way down to close to one, i.e. BEV plus ATIZO is as equal as to sorafenib. And interestingly, we cannot tell in advance who are those patients. We cannot tell even after this happens who are or who were those patients. We cannot even test for this. So we're taking already a 30% chance, one-third chance. We can tell patients, you know what? I can give you all of that ATIZO and all of that BEV and all of that kind of, you know, workup for it. And guess what? It might be equal to sorafenib in 30% of the time. So that's an important thing. And remember, even the FDA was very clear about it and put it even in the package insert for that purpose. Mm-hmm. Number two is the issue of the endoscopies. This is not really a no sweat issue. Number one, and please, please, I urge everybody, by all means, if you decide to go at Tizubev, which is a great, again, combination therapy, but please make sure you scope patients. Sadly, it's kind of becoming a little bit of laxity. Ah, I don't think they have a worry about a varices. Varices can happen. And as we know, when a varix open, it really opens up and people can bleed to death. And did this happen on the bevacizumab single agent uh, therapies before? So if anything, doing the endoscopies, uh, this can definitely cause a certain delay, but we have to do it for the atisubev. Number two is when we do the endoscopy, we have to make sure we read it right. Because remember one thing, the best endoscopists for varices are the hepatologists. They are not the gastroenterologists. Because hepatologists work in transplant era where really in the transplant field, this is really where the most varices are being evaluated. And you don't want sometimes a certain varix to be overappreciated, where in other words, we deny a TZBF for a patient because we thought this is really serious. But at the same time, we also don't want a certain varix to be underappreciated, where we say, ah, it's not an issue, and now patient is bleeding. So I think there's just a lot of kind of, you know, ifs and buts about this that really we have to think about. Again, I'm not necessarily vouching for one versus the other, but I'm trying to really delineate the differences. And of course, it's all up to our judgment what we think is best for our patients. I agree. I think it's great to have options for our patients. And I thought this was a great study. I was impressed with just one dose of uh, anti-CTLA-4 antibody. Kristen, what do you think about maybe incorporating just one dose of anti-CTLA-4 in MSI high uh, colorectal cancer patients? Where I think we use, in the prior studies, the, the types of agents we use on ongoing basis. Yeah, exactly, and and there there are a lot of parallels um, that that we wonder how come how um, <clears throat> how we can compare between the tumor types. So yeah, I think that's a big question in MSI high colon cancer, just whether we need the CTLA four antibody at all, and um, and how we use that most effectively. Most of the studies, unfortunately, have used the lower dose of IPI um, in particular, but um, but it definitely is an ongoing question that we need to answer. Um, and moving on to the other study, which I, I thought was a splash, a small study, but um, that data was at Agrasa, which already was presented in colorectal cancer and asthma, now presented in pancreas and other GI cancers. I thought it was quite impressive. Um, curious to hear your thoughts. And also, how do we actually get this drug from based on this small data set to other patients in clinic if we were to find one patient with that rare mutation? Yeah, thanks so much, Natalia. I'm so happy you bring up the crystal. If anything, uh, give credit uh, uh, to the whole team. And I think uh, Dr. Bikai Saab, an incredible doctor, he's as always did an amazing job in presenting it, despite this is a very limited number of patients. And if anything, he beautifully presented to us that patients with KRAS G12C, if anything, and this is a population that does apply to many cancers, but the aim was to show it in the GI because we were in GI ASCO, as he kindly mentioned that as well. 
impressively, despite the limited number of patients, and mainly they were the ones that he liked to focus on, and I totally agree, were the pancreatic and the biliary cancers, despite the limited number of patients, 100% response. Whoa. There were really a lot of uh, partial responses and a lot of stability of disease, which, if anything, really give us an opportunity to show that the median of the response was about like seven and a half months, as he mentioned on the average 42. Interestingly, he, bring, he brought up a lot of questions, and these are very valid questions, very thought of, which is number one is, what shall we do with this? This is definitely kind of like now we have, remember, uh, already reported data on the uh, sotoracin. And uh, this already, as we all know, was uh, published in the New England. I give a lot of credit. This is like really my dear colleague uh, who does lung, uh, Bob Lee at uh, Slow Kettering. And we kind of like learn from each other. And I was like beyond fascinated how we're going to be ultimately trying to understand those two drugs per se. But I think despite the limited number of patients in the study, this is a positive study. And I totally agree with you. This is definitely could be a, uh, a practice changing, no question about it. The question that really brings up, however, not only for that specific study, but also for the whole concept together. Remember, back in the 60s, when we're doing clinical trial, you know, you bring in a certain number of patients, statistically, you calculate a number, you compare this kind of bunch of patients to patients who receive placebo or essential standard of care, you see they did better or not, and then you decide the standard of care. On the average, studies might be at 300 patients. They can jump on to 600 patients. And look at this, Himalaya was 1,300 patients. And the question is, when we come now to pancreatic cancer, or even to go even further than that, biliary cancer, which is a rare cancer to begin with, relatively speak all over the world, even though there are certain foci where there's more patients with biliary cancers. And now with a mutation that really represent at best 1% of the patients, how are we going to try to get this to where it is? So this is where I really, I give a serious and a lot of credit and accolade for how the FDA did approve the uh, sotoracin. And if anything, we have to really bring in a certain novel approach of understanding that these populations are not to be randomized and compared to not giving the drug. Number one is what is the ethical perspective of knowing that the mutation can benefit from a certain therapy? We know very well response is high. And what's the idea? I'd like to look at survival. I think survival is key. We still stick by it. We saw already two examples, Topaz and Himalaya, where survival is critical, more than even PFS. PFS, who cares? But interestingly, however, in other settings, response, like as we just saw, as well as a, a progression of survival might be available. So I think this is going to, again, remind us again of the importance of now we have to go to version 2.0, how drugs are really to get available and become available for patients, not only depend on large trials and randomization against the placebo or standard of care. No, absolutely. Seeing those kinds of waterfall plots for patients with pancreas and other pancreatic cancers is impressive. Good news is we already have some experience with lerotractinib and antrac inhibitors, which were approved based on phase two data. So hopefully we'll be able to get these drugs to clinic soon. But I would like to um, thank you so much for this excellent discussion of this. I would like to shift gears and talk a little bit about colorectal cancers now. And um, Kristen, if you could give us some updates on the, the there's a lot of talk about uh, circulating tumor DNA and colorectal cancer. How do we start and in other GI cancers? So we you know, certainly will be curious to hear what how Gassan is using these tests as well. But um, can you tell us a little bit about the Circulate Japan and what what new information have you learned from that study compared to what we've known thus far? 
Yeah, so we were all eagerly anticipating the Circulate Japan uh, data after knowing, you know, how how that group has really um, led the way in terms of designing these studies. And um, Circulate Japan was really that, um, or the the portion that was presented at ASCO GI uh, was really the observational cohort. Um, what's called the Galaxy Study. There are ongoing uh, randomized trials called uh, Vega and Altair that we still are waiting uh, awaiting results from. But um, but really what was interesting is that there were um, many, many patients here um, represented and really along all stages of disease. So from stage one through stage four, and then they looked at different subsets. But what they really confirmed was the clearly prognostic value of circulating tumor DNA, um, particularly in the um, patients who undergo resection for colorectal cancer. So that was really nice data to see. We, we've seen that in smaller uh, studies um, in the last few years. Uh, what we don't have quite yet, though, is really uh, what we, we're not exactly sure what to do with the information. And we'll get there. We have ongoing studies that are looking at this very question, uh, both in Japan, the U.S., all, all around the world looking at these, these questions. But um, we clearly know that this is a prognostic tool, um, and we just have to get more data to, to understand how to use this in clinical practice. Um, you know, what they showed was that the circulating tumor po DNA positivity at four weeks postoperative uh, was incredibly um, prognostic for ultimate um, outcome and the curves were just beautifully separated. Um, they also saw that with the addition of adjuvant chemotherapy, um, you saw clear differences in almost all subgroups except for the patients who had um, negative ctDNA um, in the in the stage two disease. So, um, so again, very prognostic, not quite sure what to do with that information yet on a clinical basis. Personally, I am still um, enrolling patients in studies as much as possible rather than using kind of off-trial um, ctDNA testing, but I'm, I'm curious as to what you all do in your practice as well. I've incorporated ctDNA into the care of my patients. I don't see as many colorectal cancer patients, but I started to also collect the information in my GI cancers in adjuvant setting or oligometastatic disease. Um, I have to admit at this point, for me, it's more of a you know, learning exercise as to how to incorporate this test in my practice, but I have used it to pick up early recurrences, so more for surveillance purposes rather than to make treatment decisions based on um, uh, on the positivity or negativity. What about you, Gassan? Do you use this in, for your patients? Yeah, no, I totally agree. If anything, uh, Kristen, uh, you, you're, you're also right, and uh, Natalia, just you re-seconded it, which uh, I think we're all in the same place. We really don't know yet what exactly it will mean. Interestingly, the first question we asked is totally legit, which is, how does this correlate with what exactly happened in the tissue of the tumor? And we tried to do like, uh, you know, or at least we thought of like biopsies and repeat biopsies and compare ctDNA. Actually, I don't think really it's going to be the right exercise. And that's what nicely Kristen just presented to us is how can we correlate ctDNA with outcome? That's really where the exercise is going to be. So at the moment, do we practice it? Yes and no. It depends if really it's part of a trial. And number two is if really there's any at least suggestion, not necessarily full evidence, but suggestion that it can be beneficial. But at the same time, we might refrain from it as a uh, 
uh, a quick look way as patients would love to that yes you have recurrence or not because to be fair it uh, we, we don't have this full evidence yet for every disease so i would say we're still all in the same bag yes we it's available to us yes it's a very powerful research tool but at the same time uh, it's accessibility for a, a common use agnostically it's not there yet I was impressed to see that uh, adjuvant chemotherapy clear, like uh, positive circulating tumor DNA in 68% of patients. I mean, this is what we hoped chemotherapy would do, but I thought this is the first time it was actually presented. Am I correct on, on this, Kristen? Yeah, certainly in, in this in this uh, sample size, you know, to, to see those clear trends was, was really nice um, because the longitudinal testing, I think, is what's really key here, and and uh, and that was nice to to really see confirmation that that adjuvant chemotherapy, in, in many instances, in these patients with the post-op positive ctDNA, you know, can be very prognostic. Yeah, that was reassuring that what we are doing at least works, and hopefully, we'll be able to actually use these tests to uh, to actually guide therapy. And speaking of guiding therapy in adjuvant setting, I thought the results from the Accent IDEA uh, large study over 11,000 patients was um, also interesting and potentially practice chasing, or at least reassuring to us about our ability to de-escalate therapy as needed. Can you walk us through this one, please? Yeah, so so I do think that this is practice changing or at least practice confirming. I, th I think many of us kind of do um, this in practice and I'll, I'll explain what, what they showed, but um, but it was really nice confirmatory data that that probably our, um, our idea about how important oxaliplatin is in the, in the adjuvant colorectal spaces is, um, is really key. So, so what they looked at, they did look at the idea and the accent database. So this, as, as you said, over 11,000 patients, um, patients, they looked at early treatment discontinuation. So this was only patients who were intended to receive six months of adjuvant chemotherapy, whether that be KPOX or Colfots. And then they looked at the, essentially the relative dose intensity that was received by patients. Um, and they also looked at the early oxaliplatin discontinuation. And the ultimate takeaways was, were that it was not, it did affect survival if you stopped treatment early than six, earlier than six months. However, stopping oxaliplatin, as long as the patients had received um, at least 50% of the planned six months, really didn't affect survival. Um, and that was what was really a nice takeaway because um, ultimately in the in clinic, that's what we do anyway. You know, we, we are very worried about leaving, curing someone from their cancer and leaving them with irreversible neuropathy. And so I think all of us, um, between that three to six month mark, we have a very low threshold for, for dose reduction of oxaliplatin or even stopping it altogether. And even with our best experience, uh, we still leave patients with neuropathy sometimes. So, so I think it was really nice to see. In fact, I had this conversation last week with a patient it was very relevant to my practice, um, and how we felt so much more comfortable dropping the oxaliplatin after that three months instead of really pushing forward to the six months. Um, so, so that was really nice. I thought it was a very practical study. It'll be really nice to see um, more information come out from that study as well. Um, and uh, we're, we're learning so much through that one, uh, that one overall collaborative effort. Um, and I think we will continue to as well. Now, thanks so much, Kristen. Great summary. And I agree. I thought, we struggle between stopping chemo after three months in some patients, especially patients are young, 
But this was a very, the study that reassures a lot of our practices. It's hard to give oxaliplatin for six months. It's nice to know that we can de-escalate up to three months and we're not compromising patient outcomes. I thought this was a great data set. And I but, think it's becoming even more relevant because the incidence of colorectal cancer is, I mean, younger and younger patients. So I have patients in their 20s and 30s who it really matters if you leave them with irreversible toxicity but cure their cancer. So you really don't want to take any chances and and compromise their cure, but, um, but you need to be careful with toxicity too. So I think it's just going to become increasingly important. Excellent. I would really like for you to comment on the data by Dr. Lamish about MSI high rectal cancer. And I know that you're also leading the national efforts to get the large, largest study open for this patient population. I thought that data was very impressive. Similar data was presented with perioperative immunotherapy in gastric, MSI high gastric cancer as well. So we're really carving out the subsets of these diseases where chemo may not even play a role. Yeah, I, th- I thought the uh, memorial data presented at ASCO GI by Melissa Lumish was really provocative and um, and really nice to see. So what they what she presented was um, this is a phase two single institution study that's ongoing um, in patients with MSI high locally advanced rectal cancer. They received a Starlimab, so um, PD one blockade alone, and then uh, basically received that for nine cycles and then underwent reassessment um, and that include endoscopic reassessment as well as radiographic. And what they found was that, you know, this is early, it was only 11 patients evaluable thus far, um, but the clinical complete response rate was 100%. And those patients thus far have not required radiation or surgery or or the other treatment modalities that we typically think are required for for rectal cancer. Um, So so this was really nice to see. It, It sort of parallels the early stage colon data that we saw from Miriam Shalabi um, in in Nature uh, a year or two ago as well, where even with a short course of, in that case, Nevo Ipi, um, really led to in, incredible um, uh, responses pathologically in the MSI high population. Now, this is a small subset, but I would argue, you know, in a prevalent disease, and again with um, with younger and younger patients and more and Lynch syndrome and everything else, um, that it is definitely a relevant target. Um, as you mentioned, uh, we're leading the ECOG study 2201 is currently enrolling. What that study is looking at very similar population, locally advanced rectal cancer, MSI high, um, and patients are receiving nevo IPI and short course radiation. Um, so again, no chemotherapy and, uh, we're looking at pathologic complete response as the primary endpoint there. So we really do hope over time to, to, you know, uh, leave behind potentially some of the, some of our, um, standard therapies in, in, um, and really helping patients to live longer and better. Um, so, but I do think it, it is a little early. I don't think this is practice changing at the current time. We need more data. Um, but it's really nice, a really nice first step to see. I agree. I thought this was a great, great study and, uh, really gives um, great, uh, um, I guess, rationale for the study that you design and leading nationally, and hopefully we'll get that data collect, co- collected soon and available to us. 
Oh, of course, we are very proud of Melissa's work, and <laughs> this was really great. <laughs> they've, done, they've done a wonderful job, and and really it also doesn't. showing, you know, Dr. Sursek showing that in in MSI high patients, chemotherapy neoadjuvantly is really um, can can there's a high rate of progressive disease. So so you know a lot of rationale for avoiding chemotherapy if we can help it, not just from a toxicity perspective, but from an efficacy standpoint. Absolutely. We all have some of these. Oh, sorry. We all have some of these patients in our practice. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Gaston. No, I was just going to say, uh, I think, uh, as Kristen said, uh, yes, a very small population, uh, but uh, at the same time, it brings another important perspective besides all the great things that Kristen mentioned. The patient age is definitely something that, uh, you know, uh, Andrea and the team are really highly focusing on, which sadly is the reality that younger and younger patients are getting cancer. So I think the median age was like close to 50 or so. So that's really, again, one important reminder for us about like the population that we're dealing with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping when we use more circulating d- tumor DNA or MRD type assays, we'll, we'll have another tool to make sure that we're on the right track because it's always, it's always challenging when we change the standard of care in patients that have curative diseases, right? Early stage, you have mm-hmm. to make sure that you're doing the right thing. I think that's an incredibly important point because what we see with immunotherapy is that radiographic response doesn't always um, equate to, to what's going on with the tumor. You know, you can still have residual disease on scans that you then remove and actually it turns out it's just fibrosis. So I think the circulating tumor DNA, the MRD assays will be increasingly important. So we're incorporating that into the studies as well. Um, but, you know, early to know, um, but definitely a, a, a good step forward here. Well, I thought we had a great discussion. Uh, I thank you so much um, for participating in this. And I certainly have learned a lot. Um, I was wondering whether anybody has any closing remarks, anything else we should touch upon before we close the session? We can't thank you enough, Natalia. You did amazing and uh, so nice to really bring up all those important studies. And you're right, actually, I love a lot from Kristen today. And uh, again, thank you so much for moderating and helping us with the presentations today. Yes, thank you so much. And it's great to be with you all and, and hopefully in person at some point here soon. And uh, But, you know, I, my takeaway from ASCO GI this year was really across all tumor types, we're, we're seeing advances. And it's so nice to see, you know, there, there have been times in the past where only one positive study, you know, we look forward to. And now we're, we're really seeing advances across tumor types. And it's um, it really means a lot, I know, to our patients, but also to us, you know, to be able to provide those new opportunities for them as well. Cannot agree more. Again, thank you so much for participating. Thank you, VJ Oncology, for inviting us. Thank you very much to our expert panel and to you for listening to the latest episode of the Video Journal of Oncology podcast. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. To keep up to date with the latest cutting-edge oncology content, visit vjoncology.com and follow at VJ Oncology on Twitter to join the conversation.